Let's open our Bibles to the book of Isaiah as we continue on uh, in our journey in chapter 9 today. We'll look at all the chapter, verses 1 through 21, uh, in a message that has been entitled, A New Day is Dawning. A new day is dawning. Let's pray. Father, once again, we just say thank you for uh, gathering us together, Lord, for, uh, Lord, assembling our hearts and our minds. And I pray, God, that our hearts and our minds would be tuned in and set toward you, that we might hear from you, God. And so we give this time to you. We pray that you speak by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Isaiah chapter 8 ends in trouble and darkness. If you remember right, when you were with us, the Lord had been speaking uh, of the judgment that was to come upon the nation of Israel, uh, how that the Assyrian uh, invasion would utterly annihilate, overwhelm them. Like He likened it to a great river overflowing its banks. And the Assyrians would overflow even to the areas of Judah, reaching all the way up, he said, to the neck, uh, coming right up to the capital city of Jerusalem. But God would be with him. Remember, but God is with us, or translation, Emmanuel. And he would take up their cause. He would fight for them. The Assyrians would not succeed in conquering them. And God had warned the people. He was speaking to Judah by giving them an example of what was happening in Israel or the, the northern kingdom. And God had warned the people of Judah not to follow after the ungodly political persuasions of popular opinion, but rather to stay true to the ways and to the word of God. Don't worry about what man may say. Don't worry about what man might do. Fear God. That's the word, right? Fear God. Let him be your dread. Listen, a healthy fear of God will keep you out of all kinds of trouble. Okay, uh, the psalmist said it like this. He said, the fear of the Lord is clean. I love that. The fear of the Lord is clean, uh, enduring forever. The fear of God will keep us out of out of the uh, almost got the whole verse enduring forever for the word forever should be on the end there. <laughs> the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The fear of God keeps us out of the pig pen, so to speak. You know, you won't be engaging in things that will defile you before God because you fear God. You love God. You want to honor God with your life. Guys, let's turn our attention. Let's actually back up just a little bit. Let's get a head start, uh, kind of ramping into chapter 9. Let's go to verse 19 of chapter 8. Okay, here we go. And when they say to you, seek those who are mediums and wizards and whisper, who whisper and mutter, should not a people seek their God? Should they seek the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it's because there's no light in them. They will pass through it hard-pressed and hungry, and it shall happen when they are hungry that they will be enraged and curse their king and their God and look upward. And then they will look to the earth and see trouble and darkness, gloom of anguish, and they will be driven in to darkness. Question, where do you go in times of trouble? 
That's the question that confronts us in this little section. To whom do you look for guidance and counsel in life? I mean, are you a, I call the psychic hotline kind of a person, you know? I go to those who turn the tarot cards to mediums, you know, those who whisper and mutter, those who seek the dead on behalf of the living. Listen, he says, look to the living word of God. You know, so often people won't look to God's word. They won't seek the counsel of Scripture but if you won't look to the light of God's word, there's nothing left but darkness, he says. Trouble, gloom of anguish. And so they would be driven, we read, into darkness. Now look at verse 1 of chapter 9. Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed as when at first he lightly esteemed her or lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali and afterward more heavily oppressed her by way of the sea beyond the Jordan in the Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. So the, <clears throat> the idea here, excuse me, <clears throat> and the reason we back up is because you guys know the chapter breaks were not inspired by God, right? Isaiah wasn't right and got to chapter 8. He was like, okay, I'm going to end here and I'm going to put a new chapter in here. That was just inserted for us to help us find our place and navigate the scriptures more conveniently and easily. But the, the flow is falling right out of chapter 8 into chapter 9. And he's saying this gloom and this doom isn't going to be forever. It's not going to remain upon her who is distressed. Speaking of the northern territory of Israel, God would humble them, but he would also bring healing to them. And he's pointing out the fact that the Messiah would be born and bring the major outcropping of his ministry into that same region. The land most severely ravaged would receive the most special blessing. Jesus, the light of the world, would bring healing and hope to the region. He would bring glory to the land in the north, in the region of Galilee. It's in the fourth chapter of the Gospel of Matthew where you read of Jesus' response to the news of John the Baptist, when John the Baptist had been taken and placed in prison. And we read that at that point he left his hometown of Nazareth, and uh, Matthew tells us that he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the the sea in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, notice that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet saying, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali by way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region in the shadow of death, light has dawned. And guys, this is the net effect of the life and the ministry of Jesus. He brings light. He brings great light into otherwise dark places. As John wrote, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Guys, I don't know. Maybe you feel like you're in a dark place right now. You know, about as far away from God as you could possibly be. Listen, it's into the darkness that Jesus shines the brightest. And he loves to bring light into those dark places and help us find our way in him. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And it's his life that brings light to us. Now, 
Every now and then, you will hear me use the phrase prophetic telescoping. Uh, it's where the author may jump, no, I don't know, tens or hundreds or even thousands of years uh, within the span of a single verse or two. Uh, now, what we discover in Scripture, guys, is that, and maybe at least it, it kind of sticks out to me sometimes, perhaps you've picked up on it as well, and that is this, that God, uh, it's not uncommon for Him to tell us what He's going to do. It's not uncommon for Him to tell us who He's going to work or do it through, or even how He's going to do it. The trick is, it's the when that he likes to leave out of the equation, you know. Uh, verses 1 and 2 look down the prophetic pike some 700 years or so from Isaiah's time. Uh, verses 3 through 7, now as we're coming upon them, they were certainly foreshadowed during the first coming of Christ, but won't ultimately be fulfilled until His second coming, during the time of His millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign that He will establish over all the earth. And so it would seem there's an interval of time, over 2,000 years, between verses 2 and 3, okay? Perhaps you remember that Isaiah's son, one of his sons, was named Sheer Jashub, or however you say. It means a remnant shall return. But as we launch into verse 3, you'll read that uh, rather than protecting or preserving a small remnant, God will enlarge, He will expand, He will multiply the nation, He will increase its joy exponentially. Again, these things are being kind of, uh, they're prophetically propelling us, they're pointing us to the millennial kingdom of Christ when he will do, when God will do these things. And as a secondary, you might pick up on the deep contrast between what's to come in Christ, uh, the king of kings, and what's happening in their current situation, their current king, Ahaz. Right now, as our passage is laid out in front of us, they're in darkness, right? Gloom of anguish, war, oppression, trouble. These are the words that are being used to describe the present passage. When Jesus is on the throne, joy, rejoicing, freedom, and peace. Uh, we're being moved from darkness and distress into light and healing and hope through Jesus Christ who will rule the world in righteousness. Notice verse 3. He says, you have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of the harvest or the joy of harvest as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. For every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and the garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel of fire. Now, not to split hairs here, but you, verse 3 starts with the word you. It's probably a reference to God the Father, okay, who will lead his people out of darkness and into light from anguish and affliction to joy and rejoicing through his son whom he will send that we will see in verse 6 to rule and reign. But the picture here, guys, is one of unparalleled joy, 
the fullness of freedom, absolute unchallenged victory. The nation we read will rejoice before you according, according to the joy of harvest as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. In other words, the bounty, uh, the bounty and the blessing of the Messiah will be fullness of joy. Again, foreshadowed at the first coming of Jesus. Jesus likened his ministry, you may remember, to that of a wedding party. Um, in Matthew chapter 9, the bridegroom was in their midst. He says, hey man, it's not time for fasting, it's time for feasting, you know. But ultimately, these things will be fulfilled at his second coming. His enemies vanquished, their oppressors completely and utterly destroyed. The yoke of the burden broken, the staff and rod shattered. He says, as in the day of Midian. How many of you recognize that reference? Midian ringing a bell for anyone? A couple of you? Yeah, well, maybe you recall, I'll help you out, I'll jar your memory, when God called an unlikely man by the name of Gideon to an unlikely task to overthrow, overwhelm, defeat, and destroy Israel's enemies in an unlikely way by essentially not doing a lot but watching God work. Initially, you remember, God called Gideon. And guys, I would encourage you to go back, look it up there in the book of Judges. You know, it's a uh, it's pretty amazing, amazing uh, situation that's happening there. But God calls him, and I'll, I'll keep the story short, he tells him he needs to rally the men to himself, right? He needs to set an army in order. And so uh, Gideon throws down the gauntlet and 32,000 men show up. That's pretty, I mean, that sounds pretty good. You know, that's not a bad sized army at all. Until you realize that the Midianite army numbered 135,000. And then you go, hmm, that's like a little, I mean, just a little over four to one. I mean, it's, uh, I don't know if this is good. And God says, you know, it's not good, Gideon, because you have too many men. And so, and so God's like, or Gideon's like, say what, you know? And uh, God says, well, here's what I want you to do, Gideon. I want you just to uh, talk to the men and, and tell everyone who's afraid that they can go home. So Gideon riles him up and he says, hey, listen, man, if you guys have your, if your nerves are shot, if you're unsettled or unsure, just go home. 22,000 of them left. And, uh, and I'm, okay, I'll, I'll keep it even shorter. God says still too many. And so God whittles Gideon's army down to 300 men. And so now it's, uh, it's like 450 to 1 are the odds, okay? And so God wanted to whittle him down because he said, look, when, there's, when it's 4 to 1, I mean, it's, it's not probable, but it's plausible that they could win. And he says, look, I don't want you guys all boasting like you've got some kind of skilled swordsmanship that really won the day for you, and you're going to take the glory away from God, right? And so God says, no, we're not doing that. So he whittles it down. He whittles it down. There's 300. It's 450 to 1. God says, here's what you're going to do. Divide your camp into three groups of 100 men. And I want you to, at the appropriate time, you're going to place por uh, torches in these clay pots. And at the appropriate time, you're going to sound the alarm. You're going to shout the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. You're going to bust the pot and the, and the fire, the light is going to shine out. And then you're just going to wait and you're going to watch and you're going to see what I'm going to do. And so they surround the camp of the Midianites, a hundred here, a hundred here, a hundred there. The, the signal's given, they bust the pots, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon, the light shines out. 
and 120,000 men of the Midianites. You remember there was confusion and chaos in the camp. They began to fight one another. And 120,000 of them fell. And the rest were routed, rounded up, and destroyed. Here's the point. You have this treasure, the Bible says, in earthen vessels, the light of the world. Jesus Christ lives in you. He lives in me. A bunch of crack pots, right? <laughs> That's what we are. We're these earthen vessels. We're just crack pots. And when we let that light shine, it's the broken vessel that he shines through. Do you see that? And when we let that light shine, guys, God goes to work. He does it all. He likes to take unlikely people, use them in unlikely ways for the glory of his name. It's yours, it's mine to simply let our light shine into the darkness. God will take it from there. Okay? But again, the point here is that when Jesus reigns, endless joy, as in, you know, he talks about like the, the victory, dividing the spoil after the war. Today we would probably have a little bit more of a, of a it resonate with us to think of what happens in the locker room of the champions after the championship game. You know what I'm saying? It's like the championship game, they're in the locker room, they're just living it up, it's just joy and festive and all of the kinds of things. It's absolute freedom that he's looking forward to, the enemy being thoroughly, completely defeated. It's perfect peace that he points us to. He says, for every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and for fuel for fire. Guys, when the battle was over, they would take the blood-soaked clothes, the wrecked sandals from the battlefield, they would roll them up and they would burn them, you know? Listen, when Jesus reigns, war will be a thing of the past. Implements of war will be destroyed. Victory is complete. The battle is over. Guys, it calls our attention back to the second chapter in the fourth verse that says, They shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, and neither shall they learn war anymore. Hallelujah. And though these are things that will happen when Jesus reigns over the earth, you should recognize, you should realize that there are also things you can experience presently. Not only things that will be, but you can experience them presently in Christ. In Jesus, we have joy inexpressible and full of glory, victory over sin, freedom from the oppression of sin. Jesus, how many of you know, I... I I wonder how many here could testify to the fact that Jesus breaks bonds and sets captives free. Anybody? That's what I'm talking about. And peace that passes understanding. Notice verse 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the increase of His government and peace there shall be no end, and upon the throne of David and over His kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts 
will perform this. Now, this is undoubtedly one of the more familiar portions of Scripture, and for a good reason, right? It's a beautiful passage. You probably hear it many times through the Christmas season. It's this passage that pertains to the coming of the Messiah, His kingdom upon the earth. Again, more accurately, it points to His second coming, but we hear it a lot with regard to His first coming, right? He says uh, it's a time when Jesus will be upon the throne again currently they're in deep, dark distress, but this time will be glorious, it will be peaceful, it will be prosperous. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. Now, think about this. When Isaiah wrote this, he probably, I, I, I have little doubt that he was just using this Hebrew literary tool of repetition, right? Uh, they would repeat things to emphasize the point. We've talked about this before. A child is born, a son is given. But we're so grateful, aren't we, for the careful oversight and inspiration of the Holy Spirit as he specifically worded these things through Isaiah. You see, from man's perspective, a child would be born. Of course, this establishes the fact that the Messiah would be a man, a human being, not altogether unlike you are and I am. Guys, I suppose in theory, the Messiah could have come to the earth a fully grown man. You know, I mean, perhaps formed of the earth like Adam was originally. And I don't think so long as our redemption was accomplished, any of us would really care. I mean, we're fine with that. But Jesus, in order to fully identify with humanity, displaying the fullness of of humility coming in the likeness, even as a baby. Guys, is there anything weaker, more helpless, more dependent than a child? That he might demonstrate the servant nature that's in the heart of God. He made himself of no reputation, right? Philippians chapter 2 and verse 7, took the form of a bondservant and came in the likeness of a man born as a child. He was flesh and blood, fully human like you are and like I am. But from God's perspective, you see, that's where the son is given. Yes, this child would be a man, but much, much more than a man, he's the eternal son of God. The second person of the triune God. God's, listen, God's giving, what we're seeing here, unto us a son is, is given. Do you understand that? In other words, what I'm saying is that this is an intentional, this giving is an intentional act of God's love for you and for me. Uh, Jesus said that like this. He said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So though we understand that the humanity of Jesus was added to the deity of Jesus over 2,000 years ago when he was conceived of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Let's be clear on the fact that that was not when Jesus came into existence, okay? He always existed as the eternal Son of God. You remember Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. And he used that same phrase that God used uh, in the burning bush passage. You know, I am that I am. And so he's the eternal 
existent, always present one. And guys, though we don't have time to really get into it, suffice it to say that the eternal nature of Jesus is absolutely essential in our salvation. We needed a man, right? We needed a human being uh, to be our redeemer. Why? We know that it's impossible that the blood of bulls and goats uh, should uh, take away the sins of man. An animal can't remove the sins of a man. We, we understand this, right? Yet at the same, so it takes a man on, on behalf of man to stand in the gap. But it also, we recognize that it takes a sinless man to make atonement for a sinful man. In other words, how can a sinner atone for a sinner? It can't be done. It's impossible that an imperfect man could provide a perfect sacrifice. Does that make sense? Because he starts from a flawed position. So an imperfect person cannot provide perfect atonement. So not only did Messiah need to be a man, it was non-negotiable. He had to be God. Because as it pertains to man, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's only one who's good, and that's God. You see, and His eternal nature is what seals the deal, right? Because we needed a perfect, infinite being to provide a perfect, infinite atonement for sin. And God alone is eternal in His nature. And so Jesus, as the prophet writes, shall be called Emmanuel, which is translated, what? God with us. Hallelujah. By the way, uh, the fact that Jesus was fully human as well as fully God shows us that perfect humanity is completely compatible with deity. What are you saying, Pastor? Well, what I'm saying is that our problem isn't our humanity, it's our fallenity. I just made that word up. It rang well with humanity, fallenity. It kind of had this, all right. But it's, guys, it's our fallen nature that snares us. In other words, to say uh, I'm only human isn't really right. You understand that? Because Jesus was human as well. More appropriate would be to say I'm at best fallen. Okay? Uh, and perhaps I should just state that the humanity that Jesus added to his deity wasn't fallen. I just go ahead and state that was the, what he had was the perfect humanity known by Adam and Eve prior to the fall. Okay? He, he had a sinless nature. You and me, we have a sinful nature. And guys, let's take a moment and rejoice in this next phrase, shall we? And the government will be upon his shoulder. Can somebody say amen? Amen. I mean, how are you feeling about the shoulder our government's upon today? <laughs> Easy there. You know, in Isaiah's day, their leaders, as we read and or we read in the past chapters, were foolish and incompetent. <laughs> Not unlike a lot that we have today, but Jesus will govern the nations in wisdom and righteousness. And his name will be called Wonderful. Now, some of your Bibles may say Wonderful Counselor, like in a single phrase. Uh, some split the word Wonderful, comma, Counselor, comma. I believe both are appropriate. Now, of course, when it says his name, guys, don't be confused. It doesn't mean people be walking around saying, well, you know, good day, Mr. Wonderful. Uh, though that would be appropriate with Jesus. 
but, you know, his name is not like his first name is going to be wonderful or, or whatever the case may be. A name in the ancient world would speak of character traits, right? This is, this, these, are, these are aspects of his character. These are words that are descriptive of who he is, what he's come to do. And certainly Jesus is wonderful. You know, uh, last Sunday I came out and I told you, you know, uh, you know, pray for me and I'll pray for you that God would renew our wonder for his word. You know, I've been seeking the Lord to, to renew my wonder for his word. Uh, my wander for worship. You know, sometimes we get going and it's like we're doing our thing and, and uh, all of a sudden like we, we kind of slip in that sense of, yeah, we're still maybe doing what we need to be doing, but that awe, that wander begins to wax, begins to, to wane. Sometimes we grow familiar and we lose that sense of astonishment, you know. But guys, that doesn't speak of a shortcoming in him. That speaks of a shortcoming in me. He is wonderful. And he fills our heart, our mind with wonder and amazement for all that he is and all that he's done. Now, this word wonderful also has overtones of deity. Perhaps you remember, maybe the word wonderful is ringing another bell in the back of your mind when the angel of the Lord. Now, when you're reading your Old Testament, you see the phrase angel of the Lord, but the A is capitalized. What's being referenced there is what we call a theophany or an Old Testament manifestation of Christ pre-incarnate, okay? And he spoke to Samson's dad. You remember that situation? He shows up, he's speaking to Manoah about Samson and the kind of man he was to be and the kind of life he was to lead. And Samson's dad, Manoah, he's like, what is your name that we might honor you when your word comes to pass? And we read that the angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name seeing it is wonderful? Think about that. Counselor. Guys, I challenge you to find a passage in scripture where Jesus asked advice from anyone. You know, well, what do you, th I mean, every now and then he would use as a teaching tool, how am I going to feed these people or whatever the case may be? But where did he ever ask advice? Like, gosh, John, I'm not real sure what I should do. Peter, what do you think? You know, I mean, where, which way you want to go? What should we know? He never sought advice. He always gave advice. He always offered the counsel. He is wisdom from God. He's the one to whom we turn in time of need. He's fit, more than qualified, to give guidance to our lives. Now, there are times when he will use other believers, right? He'll use believers to speak into our lives, but make no mistake, he is our counselor. It's his voice we hear. It's his voice we follow. It's his counsel that will always be faithful, never motivated in self-interest, always with what's best for you in his heart and in his mind. And here's the cool part. Not only can Jesus tell you what to do, but unlike other counselors, he can empower you. He can enable you to do it. Do you see that? He shall be called mighty God. Is there anything too hard for me, says the Lord? Ladies and gentlemen, you don't get a more clear, straightforward declaration of deity than what we read right there. Now, I know that Jehovah's Witnesses try and make a distinction between Mighty God and Almighty God. 
um, as though he's lesser or something. Can I just tell you something? You're either God or you're not. Okay? There's no such thing as like almost or not quite or not, you're kind of a second tier. You're either God or you're not. Um, and uh, we should also say that this word, mighty God, almighty God, they're both applied to Jesus in Scripture. We'll see almighty God applied to him not too far from now. And they're also applied to the Father, God and almighty God, right? Mighty God and almighty God. There's just no way around the fact that this is a clear statement of absolute deity. In some way, Isaiah was understanding Messiah would be a man. Unto us a child is born, a son is given, but yet Almighty God. So he's, he's trying to add this up in his mind. Somehow, in some way, he's man, but he's God. Guys, no other person has ever shared the name of God, and God has never shared another man's name. Do you see what I'm saying? In other words, uh, and he shall be called, you know, Moses. I mean, God's never shared the name with Moses. You know, well, you can call me God or you can call me Moses. You know, it's never God. He wasn't Abraham or David. He's not. He doesn't share a name with man. So there's something different about this son who would share God's name. A child born called Almighty God or the Mighty God, you see. There's just something here. And the truth is that if Jesus wasn't God, then the religious leaders were just in crucifying him for blasphemy because he claimed to be God. But Jesus is God. And as God, we see his eternal nature come into focus for us here. Everlasting Father. Now, don't be confused here and think this is suggesting somehow the son is also the father. I mean, how is he how's the son called the father and all of that? Listen, the Bible is clear about the fact that the person, each person of the Godhead is distinct, right? We have God, the father, God, the son, God, the Holy Spirit. And so people go, well, isn't that three? And I say, well, it just depends on how you do the math, right? Because one plus one plus one, it is three, but isn't one times one times one still one. So, I mean, how you want to figure it, right? Be that as it may, in the ancient world, again, the Jews would use the word father. It would mean originator. Does that make sense to you? In other words, Abraham is the father of the nation of Israel. Uh, Jesus called Satan the father or the originator of lies. Uh, Jesus is the father or originator of eternity. Okay, he is the source of from which all eternity springs. In other words, if you want anything eternal, you have to go to the source. You want eternal life, then you go to Jesus. He is the everlasting Father or the Creator, the originator of eternity. Are you following me? John said that like this. He said, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, or God was the Word, more literally. He was in the beginning with God. Notice, all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. Jesus was not created. He is the creator. Time and eternity are authored in him. You can write down, look it up later. Paul reiterates it in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 16. For by him and through him and for him were all things made. Okay? So he is the originator of eternity, the everlasting father, the, the eternal originator. Does that make sense? That's what he's saying. And he is the prince of peace. Family, 
There's no peace apart from the Prince of Peace. Uh, he is made, he's made for us peace with God, and he shares with us the peace of God. Peace, the peace with God uh, comes through the blood of his, Christ, of his cross, and then the peace of God he shares with us as we receive him into our heart and into our life. When Jesus reigns, there will be peace on earth for a thousand years. Today we live in a world riddled with war and uncertainty. But of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Uh, guys, the reign of Jesus Christ is an eternal reign. Yes, the millennial kingdom will be a special aspect of his reign upon the earth, but don't think he's like abdicating the throne when that's, well, my time's up. You know, it's not like that. His reign will be eternal. From that time forward, he says, even forever. And guys, it's not going to happen through the ingenious plans of man. You know, all we are saying is give peace a chance and all of that. No, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Now, guys, some of you may be looking at your clock going, we're only at verse 7 and there's 21. Okay, we're going to rev it up now. You ready? You ready to shift gears? We're going to get through this next section here. But I want you to pick up on the contrast between Messiah's future reign of justice and righteousness and peace with the leaders in our present passage who ruled selfishly, sinfully. Right? Look at verse 8. And the Lord sent a word against Jacob, and it has fallen on Israel. All the people will know Ephraim and the inhabitant of Samaria, who say in pride and arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen down, but we will rebuild with hewn stones. The sycamores are cut down, but we will replace them with cedars. And therefore, the Lord shall set up the adversaries of resin against him and spur his enemies on the Syrians before and the Philistines behind and they shall devour Israel with an open mouth. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still, stretched out in judgment. Now, when you read the word Ephraim, think northern kingdom, okay? E Ephraim was the largest, most influential tribe in the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, so when you read Ephraim, he's just referencing the northern kingdom. Now, when you read Samaria, think northern kingdom of Israel, because Samaria was the capital city of the northern kingdom of Israel. So God, again, is warning the southern kingdom of Judah. When you read of Judah or Jerusalem, you're thinking southern kingdom. Ephraim, Samaria, you're thinking northern kingdom. Are you with me? Okay. And so he's warning the southern kingdom through what's happening in the northern kingdom. But the root issue is in verse 9, if you're an underliner or a highlighter. Pride and arrogance of heart. God hates pride. They were snubbing their noses. Did you catch that as we read through it? They were snubbing their noses at the judgment of God. You know, if bricks fall down, we'll rebuild with hewn stone. If the sycamores fall, we'll replace them with cedars. Guys, they had a build back better slogan going for them. <laughs> you know? I'm telling you, that was the campaign slogan. Whatever damage is done, we'll just build back better. 
you know, rather than submit to God, they thought they'd just take the opportunity to improve their long-term situation, this uh, optimistic outlook of the future, you see. And so God said that he would send successive waves of enemies against them. They wouldn't be able to rebuild. They would be utterly destroyed. But his judgment wouldn't be enough to turn their hearts back to him. So he keeps his hand outstretched. His anger doesn't turn away. Look at verse 13. For the people do not turn to him who strikes them, nor do they seek the Lord of hosts. In other words, his chastening isn't changing them. Therefore, the Lord will cut off the head and the tail from Israel, palm branch and bulrush, in other words, the high and the low, in one day. The elder and the honorable, he is the head, the prophet who teaches lies, he is the tail. For the leaders of this people cause them to err, and those who are led by them are destroyed. And therefore the Lord will have no joy in their young men, nor have mercy on their fatherless and widows. For everyone is a hypocrite and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly. And for all this his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. Uh, Guys, they wouldn't repent when judged. They rooted themselves in resistance. And so God would take from them their leadership, the head and the tail, the best and the worst, the elder and the honorable, uh, the prophet who taught lies, uh, deceiving people for personal gain. He says, you're all, they were all evildoers. They were all hypocrites. All their mouths spoke folly and foolishness, you see. Now look at verse 18. Uh, Who's closing? Is it? You come on down whenever you get a chance there. Uh, Verse 18, he says, For wickedness, underline this, wickedness burns as the fire, and it shall devour the briars and thorns and kindle the thickets of the forest, and they shall mount up like rising smoke. Uh, Through the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is burned up, and the people shall be as fuel for the fire, and no man shall spare his brother, and he shall snatch uh, on the right hand, and he shall be, uh, and, and be hungry. In other words, he's taking but not satisfied. Devour on the left and not satisfied. Every man shall eat the flesh of his own arm. Chaos, you see, cannibalistic kind of fervor. Manasseh shall devour Ephraim. These guys were brothers, Ephraim, Manasseh. Together they shall stand against Judah. And for all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. God's judgment would consume them as wildfire to the point that they would inflict unspeakable carnage upon one another. But I drew attention to, I had you underline what fueled the fire of God's judgment. It's there in verse 18. For wickedness burns as the fire. In other words, What would have caused the fire of God's judgment to relinquish, to to be put out? One word, repentance. Cease wickedness. If the wickedness was taken away, the fire would go out. What's the word? What's the take home? What's the take away? Turn from your sin, you see. Trust in the Lord. 
respond to his chastening hand. Maybe, and I don't know, maybe it's a word for someone here today. Maybe God's chastening hand has been heavy upon you and you're setting yourself in resistance. You're resisting the chastening hand of the Lord. Don't resist, repent, you see. Turn from your sin. Don't root in rebellion. Salvation, restoration, renewal, they're found in Jesus Christ. And so, God, we thank you for your word and the hope that you hold forth in your son. God, I just pray that if there's anyone here today who feels like they're in the dark, that your light would shine forth into that darkness. God, that you would bring hope and healing the peace that you've provided in Jesus. You know, and if you're here today while our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, and, uh, and that's you, you're just in the dark, you know, you don't know the Lord, you've never given your life to the Lord, well, this is your moment to hear His voice to turn from your sin, to trust in Him. Guys, judgment is coming. It's a fact. God is telling them this is coming. But in His love, He, he warns us. He gives opportunity to us. He makes grace available even in this moment. Jesus has loved you has given himself for you upon the cross. And he provided the perfect sacrifice for sin that in him you might find forgiveness and have everlasting life. Go to the source, the author of all things eternal. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. It's in Jesus that we experience the dawning of a new day out of the darkness and into the light.